The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Michael Jans. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're taking a break from our summer vacation to record this episode on Sunday, July 14th, 2019. And we are joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, fellas. Hey, fe- hey Adam. How, how's your summer been? Great, man. I spent two weeks in France. That sounds perfect. So I missed all the rain here. Oh, good. But yeah. you got the, the sweltering climate change-induced uh, uh, heat wave in Europe, right? Yes. it yeah. was. Uh, we had one day that was 40 degrees Celsius with a relative humidity of 83%. Wow. Well, welcome back to rain, uh, rain-inflicted rain Edmonton, where it rains every day and, and rarely gets above 20 degrees. Yeah. It's so even that means... warmer, even warmer when you're wearing a yellow vest, isn't it, Adam? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't actually see any of that stuff there. Just a lot of smoking. Yeah. Smoking and vaping. Pu- public, like public smoking. Oh, yeah, like and on patios. That's oh, wow. a, That's totally a thing. Isn't that kind of a shock? I remember after the first like week or so after, their, the first month or so after they banned smoking in bars in Edmonton, I was down in Lethbridge. Like this is back like early 2000s. Yeah. And I remember even after a month or two how like weird it was to walk into a bar where people were smoking. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it, it was the norm there. And the other thing that I really liked about that place is cars, bikes, uh, e-scooters, e-bikes, motorcycles, normal gas-powered scooters, pedestrians, and trams all coexist. Wow. And there are no cross-arms anywhere. Like, you know, barriers to prevent I, you from crossing the train tracks. Wow. Like, it was... I was... <laughs> I actually texted a few videos and images to Mayor Don Iveson because I was like, dude, check this out. Will it be like this in Edmonton? And he was like, thank you for the imagery. <laughs> it was I like a, a multimodal utopia. Amazing. It was wow. incredible. And it, it was interesting because we, we were there watching people whiz by on these e-scooters, and I guess Edmonton and Calgary will be getting those relatively soon. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to take an e-scooter to our next uh, podcast recording. Yes, we will. But that's not what we're here to talk about. That's we're right. here to tell Don Iveson he needs to run for another term. We really need you. <laughs> we need those e-scooters. Yeah, we, we need them now, especially in the wintertime. I hear and, they're good in the winter. And that concludes the municipal politics segment. <laughs> Let's move on. In this episode of the Dave Berta podcast, uh, we're going to be discussing the recent legislative session and some of the legislation introduced by the new United Conservative Party government, including the contentious Bill 8, also known as Bill Hate by its opponents. Uh, And we're going to try to answer the question of why the heck we're still talking about gay-straight alliances in Alberta. Uh, We'll talk about the never-ending battle over pipelines, climate change, and the conspiracy theories about foreign-funded interests invading Canadian and Alberta politics. And we'll dive into the mailbag to answer some of the great questions our listeners have sent us. But first, I'd like to introduce our special guest co-host for this episode, our foreign, but not foreign-funded, education correspondent. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. I usually listen to you guys on triple time, so it's really weird to hear it slow down. You listen to all your podcasts that way, don't you? Pod faster. (laughs) You're ruining the medium, Jans. Well, uh, uh, our listeners can can listen to this episode in triple time and tell us what they think if it's something we should uh, we should implement for future episodes. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael. I mean, Dave and I know you pretty well. We've known you a long time, but where do you fit into provincial politics? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Um, so I guess I'm a longtime reader of the Dave Berta blog, first time writer. Um, it, I, my relationship with Dave and, and to some extent Adam goes back to the University of Alberta Students' Union. 
I was a student counselor when Dave Berta was the vice president external of the students' union. So I was one of his uh, protégés there. And I guess uh, to go a little back uh, even further, I did my K-12 in the thriving metropolis of uh, Strathmore Brooks. So in another alternative timeline, in I'm, I am Derek Fildebrand. <laughs> and uh, I would be on the, the right side of the equation with a, a slightly more refined haircut and a thicker beard. So uh, we might... Uh, yeah, there's. I'm sure there's some weird parallel universe. If I if I never left Strathmore, what could have happened? But well, well thanks for joining us, Derek. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, I I'm sure there's a cheap shot there. Like, well, I actually lived in the community. Do do do. But yeah, uh, no, I wish him well. Um, so yeah, I um, I got involved in student politics at the UVA with Dave and was fortunate to uh, benefit from his mentorship. And after that, got involved. I worked for the Public School Board's uh, Association of Alberta for former Minister David King, so got involved in ed policy, then worked in neighborhood community development at the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues with Alan Bolstad, former city councillor, former editor-in-chief of the of the Sun and the Examiner. Uh, so uh, yeah, I benefited from, from that experience, went on, ran for the school board in 2010 with both of their blessing and support, got elected. Uh, I was 26 at the time, uh, now I'm nine years in, got uh, re-elected um, this last election, uh, third time. So uh, really enjoy education policy studies, really enjoy community development. Um, as many of you know, trustee roles are part-time, so I've benefited to, it's allowed me to do some other really cool things in the community. Like I was uh, in the Edmonton Queer History Project. I was a researcher there. I also have done work for Big Brothers Big Sisters, so worked with um, a lot of really cool people in our community, good, doing great stuff for kids and helping, uh, helping uh, uh, comfort the afflicted. And sometimes afflict the comfortable. I, I'm going to ask you a question because when you when you started out as a school board trustee, you were not a parent. Uh, you only became a parent subsequently. What is it that drew you to that initially? Did you first of all did you know that you wanted to have kids and that was that was your skin in the game, or was it just your experience at the U of A that made you want to pursue that office? Yeah, um, partly philosophical, going back to my roots with my family that um, the but. I came from like a, a social justice Christianity upbringing and uh, a strong uh, commitment to the idea like there is no such thing as other people's children. We're all in this together, that sort of um, strong uh, community values. And so that followed me into residence, followed me into my politics. And uh, so that sort of continued on. And the belief and, and the understanding that education is really, public education is really the cornerstone of our democracy and the cornerstone of our society. And an educated society is vital for a healthy democracy. So knowing that I wanted to have kids one day, that that very much was a driver there, but also understanding that 80% of people don't have children, but they still benefit from public education. And that's hopefully some of the some of the values I want to talk about today and why I'm kind of ringing the alarm bell about this creeping social conservatism that is threatening, uh, I believe, the democratic fabric of our province that you don't just get to Alabama overnight. It takes time, and I and I want to try and try and shake some of your listeners to realize some of the uh, um, the threats knocking at the door. Dave, we're going to get criticized for this this episode because we don't have a right wing voice on it, aren't we? I thought Dave's a conservative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Depends on who you ask. D- d- Depends. So some, so, some of the feedback we get, I'm I'm the uh, I'm the right wing. And now that now that our our friend uh, Ryan Hassman's gone. Yeah, that's right. But we'll see. Yeah. 
I have a fun fact for Dave Berta listeners. Last uh, last municipal election, when I looked at the traffic to my website, there were more clicks to my site from Dave Berta than any other source, than Google, than Post Media, than anything else. So if you are an aspiring candidate for any office, it is essential that you get yourself linked onto Dave's listings hmm. because his readership is bigger than the mainstream political establishment yeah so if i were to paraphrase that i guess we can blame dave for the recent election of the united conservative party oh i've been blamed for that already (laughs) i was blamed for that a year ago (laughs) i think he shot franz ferdinand (laughs) yeah yeah probably i mean he's about the right age for it i was 18 (laughs) uh uh, speaking of candidates um i've Every election, I, I track, as, as you said, I, I track the the candidates running in in municipal, provincial, or federal elections, and I've actually started a list uh, that I put up about put up up about a month ago, uh, tracking candidates who are running for federal nominations here in Alberta, uh, going into the federal election in uh, in October 2019. And uh, um, are you concerned about the fact that all of the conservatives are now nominated? They've only nominated male candidates for the federal in, party. Well, in in Edmonton now they recently had a they recently last week had their nomination in the federal conservative party had their nomination in Edmonton Strathcona and Sam Lilly, who's a conservative activist endorsed by David Dorward, endorsed by um, Kerry Diot. He's very involved in the anti-choice activism. Is he okay? Yeah, yeah he was. He he was uh, uh, nominated, defeated uh, Julia Barman, who was uh, uh, who I believe is a provincial public servant, um, uh, was running as well in in the seat. This is the one NDP federal NDP seat in Alberta held in Edmonton Strathcona. Um, now he was nominated. The Conservatives have one nomination left in 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 Alberta in the Crow Battlefoot. Battle River Crowfoot riding, where a former Ontario member of Parliament is running, and then some local candidates are running as well. Um, but the nomination of Sam Lilly in Edmonton South Kona, as, as, you, as you alluded to, means that all eleven federal Conservative candidates in Edmonton and the surrounding area, connected area, are men. And this is interesting. I was I because because well, I mean, it's 2019, uh, and uh, and the the federal Conservatives have had, they're, they're, if if the Conservatives take every seat in Edmonton. Uh, in the upcoming election, uh, every single member of parliament in Edmonton will be would be a male. Now, I'm more concerned that almost every single federal conservative, well, there's a very strong number of federal conservatives who are pro-life activists mm-hmm. and who are, I'm more concerned about that kind of stuff and Michael Cooper's remarks and Kerry Diot's, uh, um, some of his behavior. I'm, uh, I'm, that, that's what really concerns me that we're seeing such an extreme tilt in, uh, Andrew Scheer's party and, and, uh, who, like as Brian Jean said, stop playing footsies with the fascists. Yeah, and w- one of the one of the things about the, stop playing footsies with the freaks, I think, was his quote. Okay, I'll, we'll have to, we'll have to find a find a link for that and and link to that. I think what we've seen both through the election of Mr. Ford in Ontario, of the election of um, Mayor Ford, of the election of the UCP, um, the conservative movement is moving towards. Uh, a general acceptance and a nonchalance about a lot of the things that we commonly used to hold as as decency politics. That if you said this, you wouldn't get through vetting. If you said this, mm-hmm. like a lot of the things that happened for the UCP candidates would have been automatic disqualifiers 10 years ago. Do you remember how the bring your wife's pie thing was a province-wide scandal and that candidate was almost almost DQ'd over that. And that was Rick Strankman in the 2015 provincial election. And now we have some really, really appalling homophobia, racism, transphobia, just some really bizarre views that have been now uh, mainstreamed 
by the nonchalance and and the the uh, refusal of the leadership to condemn them. And this is this is now it's established a new baseline for for what's okay. That we have a minister of education who's been a longtime president of pro of uh, and supporter of of pro life Red Deer. Like this is that used to be a that would used to be something that would be like oh I'm not sure about that or some of these other some of the other like the Mark Smith remarks the fact that as Adler hammered Kenny for it these used to be deal breakers and now like it it just I don't know what the the uh, what the equivalent is, but I think some of it is the Trump effect that um, people are just sort of like, well, yeah, they're a little, they're a little weird, but my guy's okay. Or, well, I hate the carbon tax, and it's just sort of moderated these things that so, we're sort of into entertaining ourselves to death. So, so I mean, there's no doubt that there is a social conservative element, like a strong social conservative element in the federal conservative party in the United Conservative Party. Jason Kenney is a social conservative. That's like. That's where his root, his that's where his political roots come from. Uh, the United Conservative Party did jettison a few candidates ahead of the election. Even going, even during the first week of the election, they jettisoned a few candidates who made controversial comments, who had controversial controversial views. I mean, we've all talked about the poor vetting process that the UCP went through. I think the Mark Smith thing was. I mean, I almost think it was for the UCP. It was too late for them to, to jettison. jettison Why? Him. Like literally, he wouldn't. Have, they wouldn't have been able to have, to have time to get a candidate on the ballot. So they would have had one one less seat. Yeah. One independent. Yeah. So they have how many seats do they have? Well, no, no, no. And but are we? Val- no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But but I'm just I'm just talking about how how they, they do respond. The UCP has res- and the federal conservatives have responded to this kind of pushback. I think it is ch- it is troubling that there is kind of uh, uh, look the other way. Uh, attitude towards some of these views. And I think that it just shows how far the conservative political parties have moved in, in to the right, to the social cons- conservative right in, in Alberta, in Canada. Um, the United Conservative Party that exists today is not the big tent business progressive conservative party that existed six years ago under Jim Prentice. It's a totally different beast. These are It's a, it's a, it's a different political ideology that's driving it. Uh, and there are not the the Dave Hancock's types, the kind of m- more traditional moderate conservatives Enablers? there. Well, no, no, Modern. no, but 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 the, but the types who, who would who would make the strong arguments at cabinet or at caucus to not go too far, right? Those those voices, I don't at least in the United Conservative Party caucus. I mean, they've only been in government for a few months, but I don't really see those types of those types of people sitting around the table. Um, I mean, what will be interesting to see with the, with the UCP is in terms of I mean, we'll talk we'll talk in a second about Bill Eight, um, the Education Act, and what that included, and specifically around gay straight alliances. Uh, but um, I mean, in terms of a of a social conservative agenda, I do wonder about the the number of, and this is kind of an argument that I heard after the, ca- the UCP cabinet was appointed that. The majority, I think the majority of UCP cabinet ministers or the largest group of UCP cabinet ministers come from Calgary. And even though some of the strongest UCP support came from rural Alberta, and not to say all rural Albertans are social conservatives because they're not, but there was a belief and there was an argument made that because there was such a strong urban Calgary contingent in cabinet, that that would temper some of those more social conservative tendencies that maybe uh, a government led by Jason Kenney that that had a stronger rural caucus, a rural cabinet in it would, would, would lean towards. The Dave Berta Podcast is made possible thanks to our membership in the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And I'm going to tell you about two podcasts that I think might interest listeners of Dave Berta. The first is one I think you really enjoy. 
Uh, it's called The Undercurrent. It's produced by the Narwhal, and the first season of The Undercurrent is about Bear 148, a beloved grizzly bear who lived and died in Alberta's Bow Valley. Check out this trailer. This is the story of a bear. Certain areas, certain bears gain a, a greater profile. 148 has been in the news. Um, you know, she walks across the parking lot and she's on the front page of a national newspaper. Bear 148 was a female grizzly bear who lived most of her life in Banff, Canada's busiest national park. She wasn't afraid of people, and she became a sort of local celebrity who was seen, photographed, and written up in the news a lot. So people come, came to know her, and you know, you come to know something, then you feel attached to it, and something bad happens and you feel bad. When Bear 148 left the national park, she crossed an invisible border and walked into a new set of rules. We've drawn all of these lines on a map and we've said, okay, over here, do this and this will happen and do that and this will happen over there. And it's a very complex rule book and um, bears can't read. Crossing that border would set into motion a series of events that would lead up to Bear 148's death, nearly 500 kilometers northwest of her home. For The Narwhal, I'm Molly Siegel, and this is Bear 148, a podcast that tells the story of the life and death of a bear that captivated a community. Subscribe now and find Bear 148 in your podcast feed in June 2019. The entire six-part series is now available, so search for Bear 148, Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can also find it at thenarwhal.ca slash undercurrent. Another podcast we think you might be interested in is the Your Forest podcast. It's a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all things wild. Here's host Matt Kristoff to tell you more. Hey guys, my name is Matthew Kristoff. And I'm an advocate for sustainability and environmental sciences. If you've ever wanted to know how our natural world is being managed, check out my podcast, Your Forest, where I talk with researchers and professionals in the field of environmental sciences about the work they do and the things they love. It's all about our natural world and how we manage it. Climate change to conservation, wilderness survival, wildfire, all kinds of stuff. If we're going to give up on something like trumpeter swans, then functionally we would give up on the value of wetlands coined the term sustainability. You know, forests to me are my spiritual place. It's, it's where I go to relax, to reset myself, to reconnect. This bird had flown um, over 100,000 kilometers in its life. Climate change doesn't mean that we're going to lose all of our forests. Again, it just might mean that there's a different forest. And uh, how we got here is we approached a peak by helicopter. <laughs> Um, the importance of fire in, in a wilderness situation just can't be understated. It's all about sustainability. Check out Your Forest on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks a lot, guys. See you out there. Be sure to search for Your Forest, that's all one word, in the pod catcher of your choice, or visit yourforestpodcast.com and subscribe today. So going into, going talking about Bill 8, now this is something that the UCP promised to do during the election. It was they promised to implement the Education Act, which is, and they 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 implemented, they passed a version of, from what I understand, a version of the Education Act. They made some changes of the Education Act that was previously introduced and passed, but not implemented 
are not proclaimed by the previous progressive conservative government. And the Education Act replaces the Schools Act, which is a piece of legislation that has been on the books since I think the 1960s and essentially been amended in various forms. And and the former progressive conservative government wanted to replace it with the Education Act. They never fully got around to doing that for various reasons. Um, I think they implemented, I think they actually introduced two or three different versions in, in, at varying, diff, varying times in the late, two, late 2000s, early 2010s, um, uh, but never actually proclaimed it. The NDP kept it off the books, um, but left it, left it passed. I mean, I'm, I think, I'm not sure if you can actually, I'm not actually sure technically how that works if something's passed third reading, if you could, but not proclaimed, if you can take it off the books. I'll have to look into that. Um, if any of our listeners know, please, please, uh, please chime in. Uh, but uh, uh, the NDP kept the Schools Act on the book. The UCP announced during the campaign that they would implement the Education Act. And I thought it was really interesting when they did this because it was almost as if they were caught off guard when people realized and people understood that implementing the, the Education Act, and which would basically replace the Schools Act, would mean that all the extra protections that the NDP had passed uh, around gay-straight alliances in Alberta schools and allowing basically allowing students in every school, whether you're a public school, a Catholic school, private school, a charter school to set up a GSA, uh, or having, I think it was around uh, parent, the, the issue around parental notification, as in the, the, the school administrator just not being able to notify, not, not having to notify parents when students join one of these groups. Um, the UCP during the election seemed to be caught off guard when people like figured out that actually if you do this, there's all these other things because the Education Act is a big act and there's a whole, there were other parts of it, but this was kind of the, the flashpoint uh, that, that caught the political attention because we've been having this kind of like uh, painful debate about gay straight alliances basically for the past six years, seven years in Alberta politics. Uh, and, and we just can't seem to, I mean, what seems kind of perfectly obvious for I think probably most people is something that the politicians just can't settle on and can't let go. So, New Education Minister Adriana Lagrange, Lagrange, uh, posed uh, um, was appointed. She was appointed Education Minister. She was the former trustee with the Red Deer Catholic School Division, former president of the Alberta Catholic Trustees Association. They implemented Bill Eight, um, and it was probably one of the most interesting parts of the legislative session because the NDP launched what was essentially a filibuster. Uh, drawing out the, uh, the the legislative process around uh, before Bill 8 was able to be passed. I just feel so frustrated by this whole thing. It's like a time warp. I, I mentioned I was first elected as a school school trustee in 2010, and we brought forward a GSA policy in 2011. And I think we were the one of the first um, major Westerns, uh, Western Prairie school boards to, to do such a thing. We settled the GSA question then. We set them up. We've shown they're successful. We've sh- shown how positive they are. And we were the grand marshals of the Edmonton Pride Parade in 2012. Like this issue for almost all of our students has been put to bed. It just, for them to pat this dog again seems so tactically unnecessary as if I put on my UCP strategist hat, I would have said to them, like, leave it alone. You, the the SOCON vote is not going to go anywhere. They're very loyal to you. You owe them nothing. Changing this just proves to people that uh, you do have this this um, social conservative obsession. Uh, they could have left this the way the NDP had done it, and uh, it would have been just fine. What they've done now has opened up their government for the next four years to all sorts of different eruptions that are going to land 
on the premier's desk. For example, you'll remember at Edmonton Catholic just a couple of years ago, there was a principal who was taking down all the GSA um, materials and then forcing the kids to hose the rainbows off the uh, the cross the, uh, the sidewalk, etc. So now um, the that kind of thing where the NDP had said, hey, our law says you're allowed to do this, support, you know, basically support the kids. They now are going to be on the other side having to basically either defend the school and own the, the own the school repressing the pride or uh, or they're going to have to try and try and wash their hands of it. Like why they wouldn't just leave this issue. Um, it's so resolved. And I think one of the other pieces that's interesting here that hasn't really been talked about is the impacts on staff. Uh, before Christmas in December, there were a number of high-profile cases that had come forward in the media. I believe a Catholic principal at Calgary Catholic had filed a human rights complaint that her employment had been uh, jeopardized. I'm not sure terminated or something um, because of uh, her that that she was she was a lesbian and she said this this uh, uh, this has. Uh, this this in, impeded my 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 ability to be a teacher in a Catholic system. I've heard from many other teachers who are um, queer but not out in the Catholic system saying, "Yeah, we're really worried as well too." Like, um, and there's been these other questions. So, and the minister actually launched an inquiry, not just into the Catholics, but all of the publicly funded schools, saying, "What are your HR policies?" And I don't know where that that inquiry landed, but it I believe it was on the minister's desk. So my question to Minister Lagrange would be, "Okay, uh, so what is the what are the hiring policies?" Because we have these they call them faith covenants, uh, and some of them were quite ridiculous. They were talking about I believe Janet French did a story where even um, te- male teachers who were getting vasectomies were having to say that they were going in for knee surgery because it was against their faith to get a vasectomy, and they didn't want to lose their job. So there's all kinds of things here where you could be fired for cohabitation. You could be fired for taking contraception. You could be fired for and and that I mean we had the uh, it just was twenty years ago we had Delwyn Vrend and now here we are again. So what's the minister going to do about this? And now by with their with their bill eight decision it opens these things up. So um, frankly I don't see what the win was in bill eight altogether. If you talk to teachers they want to talk to you about class sizes. They mm-hmm. want to talk to you about the complexity of kids. They want to talk to you about supporting special needs kids inclusion. Um, seclusion rooms. They want to talk about all of these other pieces. Our big fear, all of if you're in an urban board right now, your big fear is growth accommodation. How are you going to have space for more kids? If we don't get a new high school built, we're going to be busing kids for yeah. over an hour. That, if you're in the rural areas, you want to talk about depopulation, about busing, about rural sustainability. The Ed Act isn't going to change any of it. It's like parents are saying, how are you going to deal with my class size? And 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 the UCP's big win here is, oh well, we have a new superintendent regulation. But parents don't care. Teachers don't care. This is this is not a this is not something that can win them any votes, but it can certainly lose them votes now. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the I mean the entirety of the the entirety of Bill Eight, um, <clears throat> or the push behind Bill Eight, really came from uh, some of the social conservative groups that make up the like a key part of of not only just the UCP's electoral coalition, but Jason Kenney's electoral coalition. Uh, and I'm talking about the people who got out the vote for him in the progressive conservative leadership race in 2017 and later on in the United Conservative Party leadership race later that year. Um, I mean, these groups have been extremely vocal over the past couple of years about uh, whether, whether, they're, uh, whether they are um, parent groups, whether they are uh, groups from private schools or charter schools or, or, or private Christian schools, for example. Um, they've been very vocal against this GSA issue. So it seems like this is very much, at least that element of Bill 8, is very much catering to its kind of a small clientele of of UCP supporters. They're throwing them a bone. Um, and I mean, this might be, I mean, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see over the next few years 
what as the UCP continues their their uh, their term, their mandate in government, um, what else they throw? The, what what other kind of bones they throw these groups? Because this seems to be this is the big the big high profile one, and I'm interested to see whether um, going into the fall and going into the next couple of years, how this issue develops, and wh- whether there are lawsuits or whether there are are challenges to this uh, this piece of legislation. Well, my putting my UCP strategist hat on, I mean. Ford is at 20% in the polls. That's lower than Kathleen Wynne at her lowest. And one of the reasons he got there is not just not just the, the economic decisions and picking fights with labor, et cetera, but it was the crazy Stokon stuff, like the rolling back the sex ed, the um, some of the other education reforms. Like education will not win the UCP the next election, but it might lose them. And for Premier Kenny, who has been very clear, he wants to talk about pipelines and the economy, why he is doing this stuff, it's, it's puzzling to me. And it uh, don't like I don't want to praise former Prime Minister Harper, but he did a very good job of getting these people behind him when he needed their vote. But then he he uh, he didn't feed them the red meat when he was in power. And we see the UCP kind of take taking a different tack here. So it's uh, it's going to be really interesting. And these fights aren't over yet for your listeners. I would say that there's a lot coming this fall that will be massive landmines. We have the curriculum uh, redesign. So that's, I want to say $28 million of Alberta money has already gone into this. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. And for them now to, are they going to put that whole thing through the shredder? Because that's a lot of, a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, like thousands, n- no exaggeration, thousands of teachers have been involved in that process. And, uh, so on one hand, they like to say they respect the professional judgment of teachers that can trust them not to outgate kids. But when it comes to helping, plan the education and plan assessment and all of this, this is, it's, that's going to be a massive one. This curriculum question, I don't know. And if they start trying to um, slip in SOCON messages into that, that's where you're going to see a lot of pushback. For example, the pro-life movement in Canada has been trying to redefine abortion right now um, at, to include things like IUDs. They are trying to say, like the, the medical... So who's, def- who's trying to do this? The, the pro-life movement in Canada. So they're trying okay. to put out material that suggests that Anytime a, a sperm is in an egg and it's fertilized, that is a pregnancy, whether or not the pregnancy has implanted. So they are trying to say that an IUD is an abor- uh, abortion or something. There's a word they use for that. It's basically something that facilitates an abortion. So they are not just opposed to – the pro-life movement is, is trying now not just to oppose abortion as you may traditionally think about it 30 years ago, but modern contraception not to mention the, all the the other things. So they're trying to move the goalposts on this. And if we see Minister Lagrange try to insert some of that into the um, into the curriculum, you're going to see you're going to see some big concerns there. So I just want to share with you from her member statement in Hansard uh, on uh, uh, June fourth, I believe, when she when she gave her her remarks, she shared. Um, I was recent. This is quote. I was recently asked about my definition of uh, what inclusion is. My definition of true inclusion is when we, as a human society, can remove all labels and barriers. When we can look across the room at each other and no longer see the color of the skin, the gender, the sexual orientation, the religion, the disability, the nationality, immigrant or refugee, emphasis, born or unborn, the very young to the very old, and so on. Rather, let us see that we are all brothers and sisters united in humanity and then treat each other with genuine love, care, and compassion. So that that's, an I think, an indication where if there, we're going to start seeing more and more reference to the unborn and if this moves towards – like, you again, coming back to it, you don't get to Alabama overnight. These things happen and it's going to be 
uh, moving forward. So if in the curriculum piece, if we start seeing not just stuff around minimizing sexual orientation or gender identity, but if you see pro-life pieces come in, um, if you see some more stuff around uh, oil and gas and questions about the economy, that might come in there too. Those could be big minefields for the UCP. The other area I want to flag is this upcoming, there's, a, I think, going to be another bill, and it's about school choice. Now, mm -hmm. my, we haven't seen the language of this. This is me just um, repeating speculation that I've heard from others. But it could involve more funding of religious schools. It could involve more permissions for private and charter schools. It could involve more special rights for Catholic schools. Um, now, I think for a lot of Albertans, they hear something like choice and, well, who doesn't support choice? I like choice. You like choice. I think most of us, though, who were in the business agree that there have to be some reasonable limits on choice, mm -hmm. that we can't just have um, a thousand different programs in every single in every single school, um, that there must be some way of, of uh, rationing resources in a sensible manner, especially in rural Alberta where you're seeing population declining. You'll see three or four schools open in a community with maybe enough children to fill one of them. Like we are playing with scarce resources and trying to allocate them in the most effective way. And to see the UCP potentially privileging private schools and Catholic schools over public education, that means fewer resources for the rest of us whose children are not part of those faiths. Uh, that's going to be pretty concerning. So I think you're going to see a very animated response from public education advocates um, about that potentially this fall. So that could be a really big one too, that um, if it comes out that they are uh, they're helping some of their, it seemed to be they're kind of uh, paying the piper to some of their extreme religious schools who supported them and some of the homeschooling communities and others, that could be a really big one. But I think that will pale compared to the fight coming up about the budget. If we could potentially be seeing a freeze or layoffs as we're seeing more and more kids coming to the schools, but could be fewer resources, we could be seeing job losses. This whole piece around Bill 9 where they're freezing for, for teachers and nurses. I mean, teachers are, are pretty discouraged right now and, and uh, they, haven't, uh, they haven't seen an increase in five, five years. Many of them are quite animated, not just at... Uh, not just at the government, but also at the ATA. So we'll see what sort of response they want to see. They just elected a uh, a new president. We'll see. That mm -hmm. could be uh, – they could have a bit of a firebrand who uh, takes a, a different approach to government relations there. So, um, yeah, we, we – it could be very interesting times this fall. And I guess I would say to the UCP, like – do you want a culture war? Is that the terms that you want to define the election? Because I think they used to always refer to the NDP as an accidental government. Mm -hmm. Well, I would also say that the UCP very much is a protest government. A lot of the candidates were elected on a throw the bums out um, wave. So let's not get carried away. If they start, if they start putting putting their feet, their knees, their ankles into the into the lake of fire, we could really see this jeopardizing some of the seats because I heard a lot of UCP supporters saying, Jason uh, saying, yes, we know there's some social conservatives, but Jason's going to keep it under wraps. Uh, it's going to be okay. He's clear. We're just going to talk about pipelines. We're not going to touch the social issues. But I mean, the the memories are memories are long. In two more years of GSA fights and kid, Albertans don't like to be the social conservative cousin of Canada. We have a different identity now. We're more cosmopolitan. And uh, um, while the UCP got elected, they got elected on a very a very like um, on a change mandate, but not a social conservative family values mandate. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the the. I mean, first of all, we're we're so early in the UCP term right now, and this is, I mean, we have, you know, four-year term governments that typically you find governments will, uh, regardless of the party, try to get some of their more controversial elements passed early on, and then 
try to moderate them, try, try to appear to be moderated in, 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 the, in the further terms, uh, in the further years, so the closer you get to an election. So it will be very interesting. I think that with the UCP, they have such a strong mandate, uh, like un- undoubt, undoubtedly they got a majority of the votes, they have a large majority of the seats. Their platform, and I, I remember talking about this during the election, uh, I mean, their platform is probably one of the most ideologically conservative platforms, I, political party but not platforms. not socially I've conservative. Well, there are, but there are so there are the social conservative elements into it. I mean, they didn't talk about gay, gay straight alliance wasn't wasn't mentioned exactly. But bill eight or the educa- implementing the education act was mentioned. But that but that that's what it's really about, right? So so they're not. not but that's our inference into it. When you talk to the, a lot of the candidates, they still talked about supporting GSAs. Yeah. Like I, I, I think, think Doug, Doug Schweitzer was one of, the can, one of the candidates. Yeah, they, yeah. Well, and Doug Schweitzer talked about, "I'll be an ally of the queer community. I'll be your guy. Don't worry." Like he had that big statement after the protests at his office. Like, and they accused that when the NDP came out with that that big GSA rally, they said <clears> it was fear mongering. That they don't worry, Alberta. You have nothing to worry about. We're not going to touch your gay kids. So, looking ahead to the next ninety eight days Why ahead, water of the, these ahead, ahead of the federal don't election, water these weeds. Looking looking ahead, I mean, I think it's really important. Over the next, I mean, looking at Alberta politics over the next 98, 97 days, however, however long it is to the federal election, I think everything in Alberta politics needs to be looked at through the lens of federal politics. I mean, there's a reason why the legislature isn't going to come back until after the federal election. And Ontario as well. And Ontario as well. There's a reason why the provincial budget isn't going to be tabled until after the federal election is right now. Uh, the conservatives, the conservative parties in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, in Ontario, uh, probably in the mar- most some provinces in the Maritimes, and and the uh, the conservative liberals for to a certain extent, probably in British Columbia, it's all hands on deck uh, to try to defeat Justin Trudeau in the in the federal election. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, we talk about pipelines, we talk about this debate, we have this de- you know this ongoing debate over the carbon tax and and climate change. Um, uh, in Alberta, we're, we're, you know, the government has now launched this silly witch hunt inquiry into uh, into uh, secret foreign funded uh, elements who are who are uh, allegedly funding um, um, environmental groups and, and anti oil groups. Um, How does but, that compare against um, the c- funding contributions to Jason Kenney's leadership race? Well, his initial leadership campaign, and that's the thing that I think it was the Progressive Conservative leadership campaign, whereas whereas he said he was going to release his donors, and they didn't end up releasing the donors lists. That sounds hypocritical. Well, I mean, there should be trans there should be transparency on 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 all sides of this. Oh, if we're going to talk about transparency in politics, um, I think the thing with the with the foreign the, the inquiry into foreign funded influence in in for in environmental groups. I mean, I think the thing that that has always bothered me about this kind of argument, and you know we've we've seen we've heard from um, you know the the researcher in British Columbia, Vivian Krauss, who's been promoting this for for a number of years. Um, you know we hear it from from other politicians. I mean the thing that that always got me was, I mean Alberta wants to play in the big leagues. We want to attract. You know we're actively going out and attracting international investment. There, you know, there's tons of international money. Uh, in uh, in the oil sands in the oil industry, um, but it seems that you know if we if if we want the international good, we also have to, you know the international benefit. We're also going to have to take the, some of the international criticism. So a lot of this, I think, is Dave. Haven't you ever seen how when you get to the Alberta border at the 49th parallel, all of the smoke from the forest fires and all of the pollution just stops? It doesn't go into Montana. Pollution respects national boundaries. So <laughs> I don't see what you're so concerned about. Like this is the hypocrisy. Money can flow yeah. when it's when it's generating 
uh, economic investment, but when there's um, global concerns about the the sustainability and the uh, the continuance of human life on Earth, um, the fact that there isn't more of a a a global response is uh, what we're committed to the Paris Accords. Is, is the UN is the model United Nations groups going to be subject to this? It's it's uh, um, this this whole thing. It just seems like. I ultimately think it's going to be harmful. I think that we should be focused on um, talking about the economic good that we do, talking about our industry, um, not trying to not trying to create. Um, this this is this is David and Goliath, and they're just handing Goliath. They're hand, Goliath is handing David even more stones for the slingshot. It just doesn't. Again, it it just doesn't make sense. I don't I don't get the benefit that they're expecting to get from it. Yeah, I mean it, it it's it's about I mean I look at this inquiry, I look at the the so-called war room which I don't think is set up yet, which I think I think the war room is actually something that Jason Kenney just talks about and and doesn't actually create. Um, no, there's a thirty million dollar spend. I think that's well. That's, I mean, but but I know like that would to be to be like an actual teachers. physical war room. It would cre- it would pay three hundred teachers each year for education in Alberta. That would fully fund a school nutrition program. Like these are the choices we're making. We'd yeah. rather we'd rather have thirty comms jobs in Calgary than uh, um, you know feeding hungry kids throughout our province. Well, I mean, and 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 the whole idea of of the war room. I mean, this is really about stoking. I mean, I see it as as stoking historical political grievances in Alberta. It's about riling people up ahead ahead of the federal election. It's about perpetuating this myth that Alberta is a victim when it comes to the oil industry. Um, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me the most about Alberta politics is that when the price of oil is at $130 a barrel, uh, you know, people can't get out of the way fast enough and, and it, everybody's holding us back and, you know, we're, we're, we're so great. We're, you know, because we have this resource under our ground that we just happened to, you know, the dinosaurs happened to die here hundreds of millions of years ago and, and we have this resource, um, but then when the price of oil drops, which is to- totally out of our control, and, and I mean, then we, we, we go through, we, we hurt, we go through pain. People, there's, a real, there's a, real, um, a real tangible loss. People lose their jobs, people lose their livelihoods. Like, it's real. Um, but then instead of taking the opportunity to say, you know, well, holy crap, maybe we shouldn't over-rely on and put all our eggs in this one basket of, uh, of totally... Um, uh, a, a commodity that that has a totally unpredictable prices, and that comes with the comes that's in relation to the economy and and the jobs and the money that 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 uh, that goes through the the oil and gas economy, and it also I'm also talking about the over reliance that our provincial government uh, for the past fifty years or more has had on uh, on oil and gas revenues to fund the day to day operations of of government, the public services that people depend on. Instead of taking the opportunity to to try actually try to d- diversify, and I know the NDP talked about diversification when they were in government, but so did Stomach, but so did yeah, all of the but, PC premiers before him. Too. Yeah, but I mean, it seemed that diversification was just government investment in more oil and gas, which which was just seems totally counterintuitive to me. I mean, we need to start looking at looking beyond it and looking at. Yeah, there's a lot of jobs. Oil and gas, the oil industry isn't going isn't going anywhere. It's not going to, you know, despite what some conservatives believe Justin Trudeau is trying to do, the oil industry is not going to shut down anytime soon. But it's also um, not going to come back to the way it was well, either. You look at you look at um, over half of the jobs that are going to be automated. Uh, we're losing jobs not to eastern bums and creeps, but to robots. And uh, that's what I think a lot of Albertans and, and our government needs to be a little more frank with. We yeah. saw many companies automate a lot of important roles, and that's going to get uh, even more and more. I guess if I had to 
summarize this legislative session, it was it was a disappointment. I mean, I guess they wanted to repeal the carbon tax and do something there, but what's the strategy? What are mm-hmm. they going to do instead? What's the? It's one thing to repeal it, but we need a a, a a green strategy still to 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 build the social license to work with America to work with other countries. Like you can't just say when they say your oil is dirty, we're concerned about pollution, we're concerned about global climate emergency. You can't just write back a you can't you can't just say. Like, well, we have a war room. That's that's not going to – Well, I think the that – The messages I, I, are, not I, going to, are not going to resonate without some sort of recognition of addressing the, the challenges that um, um, are coming as well too, whether, whether it be with pollution pricing or carbon capture or whatever else. Like there, there should have there some, been some, we're doing this instead of that. And there wasn't there. Same thing with, with Bill 8. It was unnecessary. Bill 9, I uh, – now we're getting into big issues with 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 labor and and uh, I just uh, when I think about the big issues facing our province and our country and our globe, I'm thinking about the climate crisis, climate emergency. I'm thinking about automation and disruption and how half of the jobs in the future could be lost to artificial intelligence. I'm thinking about how real diversity, as you're as you're talking about, and and innovation. And it's frustrating because we don't um, we're not really talking about inequality either. And uh, the fact that this session has basically been defined by a $3.4 billion tax cut to the wealthiest mm-hmm. Albertans. Um, it's 2019. Uh, trickle-down economics have as much merit as flat-earth theory. We're not seeing the rebound that from Donald Trump's tax cuts. We're just seeing more inequality, and it's exacerbated. And um, it's this is, this is corporate welfare at its worst, and it's against, I think, many of the... Uh, uh, the traditional conservative ethos, and uh, we're not seeing that conservation ethic. And uh, um, this whole session, I, I think we're we're going to now see through the fall um, funding volatility for K to twelve education. The daycare pilots is the twenty five dollar mm-hmm. a day going to continue? School nu- nutrition program is that going to be axed? And and for what? Because we gave a um, three point four billion dollar tax cut to the wealthiest Albertans. Like it's there's. It's just frustrating that when we look at poverty and inequality and climate emergency and all of these other pieces, that there's no there's no strategy. I mean, I they campaigned on cutting the car, carbon tax. I get they have to keep that promise, but there needs to be a this instead. And and it it hasn't. There's they're still governing like an opposition. Where's the proposition? Well, I think I think that the the United Conservatives believe that the UCP government government believes that the free market is the solution, and I think they really believe that. You talk about trickle down economics; it doesn't work. This is something hailing back from the Reagan era, but it makes sense when you think about Jason Kenney and where he came from. And we talked about his social conservative background, but he was also the founding president and spokesperson for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. This is the stuff he's been talking about for for decades. And you look at some of the people around him, and they, they believe that as well. Um, I think they truly believe that the free market is 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 the solution to to these problems. But I mean, the the, the challenges for Alberta is that, I mean, we're you know the economy hasn't been fantastic since the price of oil dropped. Um, you know, we've had a bit of a rebound and a drop down and a rebound and a drop down again. But our population is still growing. We're one of the youngest provinces and youngest populations in Canada. Um, our cities, our towns are still growing. It's not like 
uh, a recession, like the recession back in the 80s or, or pre, you know, other economic economic downfalls where people are, you know, are actively leaving the province. Um, there are some, play, some parts of the province where people have left. Fort McMurray, I'm sure, has, has seen a population decline. But uh, but Edmonton and Calgary are still growing and, and people are having babies and those babies are going to have to go to school. Those, they're becoming kids and they're going to be going to school. Um, and I mean, that seems to be one of the big problems is, I mean... And I mean, I wonder how to, how to balance how to balance this. And this is isn't something that's simply unique to to the current situation in Alberta, but probably seemed easier for government when they had these massive oil revenues rolling in. Is is how do you balance that kind of population growth and development growth and urban growth um, with uh, uh, with the kind of investments that you need in public education, in public services, in utilities? Well, you've written about this before about how the the oil sands were developed not as a free market experiment, um, mm-hmm. but with enormous government intervention. There needs to be time. The same that was a massive disruption and something new and took significant federal and provincial government mm-hmm. investment. The same way, if we're going to be serious about diversification of our economy and not just getting our craft beer to Tidewater, but some actual long, longer-term um, uh, changes to the future of Alberta. I mean, these are going to involve um, big-picture strategy that just out of this session so far, I'm I'm not seeing. Mm-hmm. And when uh, there's an article for the show notes that I'll send along, it's called Better Schools Won't Fix America, but I'll just quote from it that while 34% of Americans aged 25 and older have a bachelor's degree or higher, only 26% uh, of jobs currently requ- require one. So the jobs that are growing the fastest don't require a college diploma, let alone a STEM degree. So we, uh, we're we seeing growth in the lowest paying jobs like food preparation and serving, personal care and service, sales, healthcare support, et cetera. We're seeing growth in those jobs, but we're not seeing um, we're not seeing major diversification here in in other ways. And I think that Alberta hasn't kind of realize the extent that AI is going to disrupt so many professions, not just in the oil sands, but even other careers like like radiology, um, how uh, it these are the big things I worry about. We have 100,000 Edmonton public students. And in 10 years, if 50,000 of them are not able to find jobs now because of uh, um, because of changes to, to technology and artificial intelligence and and just general disruption to the economy. I mean, these are um, no amount of laying off teachers or nurses, no amount of screaming about a pipeline, no amount of cutting the carbon tax is going to fix this. We need a much bigger strategy. And quite frankly, not at no level of government are we having those conversations, not provincially, not federally, um, not municipally. And that's, and that's I think, what, what really keeps me up at night is we're both young dads, same age. When mm-hmm. our kids start kindergarten, what's the world going to be in 12 years for them when they yep. finish and they graduate? So we've talked a lot about what the United Conservative Party uh, has done, might be planning to do in the fall, what their intentions are, um, what some of their the motivating forces, uh, some social conservative forces we talked about in uh, in the United Conservative Party's electoral coalition. So now, Michael, I, I mean, the question that 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 I've kind of been trying to figure out, trying to think about since uh, April sixteenth. April sixteenth was the election. Um, what do what do we do now? So in terms of looking at these challenges, looking at climate change, Who's we do you mean you being I'm, conservatives or like, like <laughs> no, I'm no, I mean in, in, like progressives in, like me and conservatives like you or uh, yeah, sure, uh, <laughs> our, our progressive conservative coalition over here. Um, what 
or I guess in people who who view the world differently, who think we have to take serious action on climate change, who think we have to address some of the serious issues around education. Um, uh, what do we do at this point in terms of like realistically? So we have an official opposition with 24 yeah. MLAs in Alberta than Democrats. Um, 24 MLAs is a big opposition for Alberta standards. Um, we don't usually traditionally have oppositions that large. This is the largest uh, NDP opposition that we've had in Alberta history. Um, but there's only a limited amount of things that an opposition party can do in our our parliamentary system that we have. Um, I mean, they were able to do, they were able to, to mount a filibuster for three days. Um, but even then the, the government has mechanisms to, to implement closure yeah, to end debate on end debate on certain pieces of legislation. Um, but looking at, you know, so whether it's looking at the opposition, whether it's looking at social justice groups at, at, at gr- groups outside the legislature, whether it's looking at municipal governments, and it'd be interesting the role of, of municipal governments in all this debate. I mean, the, the city of Edmonton has talked a lot about climate change. They have climate change initiatives. They have solar, some of the solar funding initiatives. Um, I mean, there was a big climate change conference in Edmonton a few years ago. Uh, Don Iveson has talked a lot about green cities. Um, what, like, I mean, is the role of, now, now that we have a, a conservative government in Alberta and a, a you know, potentially a conservative government in Ottawa coming in October, depending on how things go, um, abandoning their, you know, uh, initiatives on climate change. And you can make a strong argument that even the Liberal liberal and the NDP initiatives on climate change weren't going to take us far enough, weren't even going to make us meet the, the Paris, Paris climate change targets that we'd agreed to as, as, a, as, a, as a nation, um, or the federal government agreed to. Uh, is, 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 do we need to look to municipal governments now to kind of drive this change or like where, where do we go? Yeah, ultimately, Dave, I believe that um, the solution requires attention from all of us. And and I think one of the pieces, I'm glad you guys are doing the podcast and having these conversations, but I think we also need to look to our media sector and who, who will guard the guards. And uh, right now with a virtually media monopoly in Alberta, I mean, we're not as bad as New, New Brunswick, but... We need to think about that, about where are where are the, the the spaces for the conversations, the investigations. I think we need to look to some of our academics and say, where are our public intellectuals? There's a um, excellent book called um, Empire of Illusion by Christopher Hedges, who talks about how the traditional establishments who are supposed to safeguard liberal democratic freedoms um, have been asleep at the wheel. And we've essentially been living in, in essentially a professional wrestling uh, world with the heels and the faces and and we need to think beyond that and, and think about some of these bigger questions. So when we're talking about economic diversification, climate change, absolutely municipalities do have a part. The provincial government has a part. The federal government does too. Um, and I think there's a way to frame some of these interventions that make sense to um, whatever ideology you are beholden to. If, if you want to see a fiscal conservative argument, I think things like the housing first strategy make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. There's other pieces where I think you can see how vaccines save lives and that it makes sense to push pro-vaccination policies. I think there's other pieces where if you want to talk about a real pro-life argument, how evidence-based sex education and access to contraception, barrier, barrier-free access to contraception can do more to lower uh, the rate of abortion than than any any other. So there's a lot of pieces here where I think as activists, as academics, as intellectuals, as corporate leaders, we need to think about um, our decisions at all levels. I was recently reading, um, maybe your readers can confirm, that I think AIMCO has uh, investments in the private prison companies running the camps uh, that are 
uh, the concentration camps affecting um, many children separated from their parents in the United States. There's conversations like that where do we need to have uh, divestment conversations like like the world did about South Africa in the in the apartheid times. So we need to think about this, and we need to think about how. Um, I get that the UCP have very much branded themselves as the oil and gas party, but when you have major companies making, like British Petroleum, making massive solar and hydro and other investments too, um, what do we want Alberta to be next? We were since the '70s. We were the the federal government made the intervent made the investments, and boom, they ignited industry into the oil sands. How do we do that for geothermal or whatever is next? And how do we look at? Um, other interventions. So at the end of the day, I think the the biggest message to the listeners is to fight against the helplessness, the fight to to believe that um, sometimes politics is not about just doing good. Sometimes it's about stopping bad things or slowing bad things from happening. And I think that's really, really important. So um, I was we learned at the U of A, mm-hmm. if they bring a tuition increase and you don't protest, it's 10%. You protest, it might be 4%. Same thing here. I would say that to labor. I would say that to anyone else who's who's in a uh, um, in a potential uh, um, bad situation in this next budget. Get out there. Get active. Communicate your value. Talk to the parents. Talk to the families. Uh, again, I would come back to the – you say the UCP has a mandate. I say they have a change mandate. But I think that mandate could could disappear very quickly like it has for Ford and Kenny could find himself in the polls at 20% again and you could see seats in Calgary, seats in the city, seats in, in, in even some of the rural areas um, getting changed. It's been fascinating for me talking to – I talked to trustees all over Alberta mm-hmm. and I talked to a lot of rural school trustees and I said, how do you square this circle where if the UCP get elected, they are going to slash the education budget? They're going to lay off teachers. They're going to cause more stress on your already strained schools. And they would say, well, you know, we uh, our local candidate is really nice. Or they think that the, the cuts are not going to happen to them. Or they think that the cuts are just going to be happening to Calgary and Edmonton, not to their community. They think that mm-hmm. a funding formula review will only result in more funding for them. They aren't thinking about it the other way, that this may actually mean massive numbers of school closures over the next decade around rural Alberta. They're not, the like, um, it's really interesting how many of them are saying, ugh, you know, like, in our community, we voted UCP, but we're really worried about what it's going to do to education and and everything else. So I don't know. Um, times are changing. It's easier than ever to, to access information and to network and to organize. And I would say there's, like for me, I don't. I'm. I. I don't think of myself as a as a partisan. I think of myself as an education advocate. And it's regardless of whoever wins government, we organize. When the UCP were in there, we're lobbying them to make changes. When now the UCP are in, you know, we're lobbying them to make changes. So it's um yeah. Sometimes uh, the fight is the point. I think Dumbledore said, uh, uh, "Evil cannot be defeated. It can only be kept at bay." And that's a Star Wars reference, right? I think it's biblical. Okay. <laughs> Now it's time for us to dive into our mailbag. Thank You've you. You've got mail. You've got mail. We've got mail. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. I think all these. I think all of these questions came in from Twitter this time. So, oh wow! Thanks everyone who's following at Dave Berta, um, and uh, we hope to get to uh, to as many questions as we can. So, Adam, uh, are you ready? We're gonna. I think we're gonna do like a rapid. Uh, what do, call it, what do they call it? Lightning round? Lightning round, yeah. Lightning round? Yeah. Okay. Apparently with uh, snaps from a poet. It's like a jazz, yeah. beatnik lightning round. We're going to fast, slow jam the questions. But jazz is going to do it in three times speed. 
All right, here we go. Our first question comes from frequent flyer Mountain Ted, and he asks, do you expect any personnel changes in the provincial NDP now that the election is a few months past? Michael, what do you think? Of course, they're just sheer budget levels and staffing levels are not possible. So I've seen a lot of NDP folks already um, looking for uh, new economic opportunities elsewhere. Maybe they'll go work in the war room. Yeah, yeah, that's where <laughs> communicators will be working. What about you, Dave? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, when you have a, you know, I mean, you're a government and you go into opposition, there are definitely going to be changes. I mean, budgets are part of an issue. So if you're working for the caucus at the legislature, obviously your budget's a lot smaller because uh, there are 24 MLAs instead of 50-some and you're no longer government. Um, so we've seen a turnover in staffers. Um, looking at the party now, I, mean, I think it's interesting. From what I understand, Rory Richardson, who's the provincial secretary, is stepping down. So the party is, I think they actually, the NDP actually has an advertisement on their website for a new provincial secretary, which is like the CEO or the executive director of the party. Um, so that'll, that'll be interesting to see. I think Richardson was with the NDP since right around or before the last provincial election. Yeah, I think he came in in 2016. Yeah, yeah. So that'll 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 be interesting. And I see. wish I mean I wish him well. I think for any of these positions, mm-hmm. uh be it um uh in the any political party, it is absolutely all consuming and exhausting. Yeah. And these things should be marathons, not or these things should be sprints, not marathons. And so um I imagine a lot of personnel have been uh uh burning the candle at both ends for the last four years and they're looking yeah. for a new change and to do something different. And I think some of the NDP MLAs as well too, many of them are very young and uh, are former MLAs and they're looking for new adventures too. And that's the way it should be. We yeah. shouldn't be career politicians who just work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, live in our mother's basement, get a, oh wait, sorry. Hey, hey, hey. Is this mic on? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next question is from Joshua Bergman. What do you think about the Alberta UCP's celebratory photo? Disgusting. So Jans is pretty upset about that. <laughs> so this photo was was published uh, immediately after they voted on Bill 8, which rolled back protections for LGBTQ2S plus youth. Michael is dismayed, to, put, to say it lightly. Rick McIver told them, don't fall into this trap. This is the Lake of Fire trap. They went ahead and did it. So here they are dancing in what may as well be the Lake of Fire in front of the legislature. It's, it's uh, to see such glee there. Um, and and to see how uh, how poorly they handled very reasonable amendments and suggestions by the NDP and other advocates, it's just it's so it's so distasteful. It just sends a message: we don't care. Yeah. What did you uh, think, Dave? I I think I mean I think that this is a group of people who were. Uh, I mean, this is their for most of them. This is their first session in the legislature. Um, they believe they did. They've done a really good job. They believe they've 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 delivered on some of the key promises that they made during the election. Um, I mean, I think that it's interesting with, with the GSA debate, and I think we saw this throughout the election. Is I think it is. I think it is in terms of this whether you're whether you think this is whether you believe this is an issue. Uh, or whether you just don't think it's a big issue. I think it's pretty siloized between the two parties. Like I think the politics over the past five years and the recent provincial election really did like carve out that wedge that if you if you believe GSAs are a good thing and you believe that that students should have a right to create them and and that you know there shouldn't be parental notification and that school administrators shouldn't be able to stop you from creating them, you're probably not voting for the United Conservative Party. Um, I so, just, I so, actually disagree. I know some people who who believe. I know actually a lot of conservatives who are voting UCP no, because but, they want to change, well, but they still support GSAs. No, but, but, but 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 if this, I mean, in, in terms of being your one of your top issues, I mean, I mean, I think that there are people. I it would be wrong to say. I mean, I heard a lot of commentary after the provincial election. No, I 
I, 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 the day, the morning after the provincial election, I left and flew to New York for a week, which is fantastic. But when I got back from New York, uh, then I, and, and I kind of plugged back into the scene, um, you could see that people were, there were a lot of people talking about how, and you heard this during the provincial election, there were a lot of comments and people, you know, people had their battle wounds and they were talking about how if you voted UCP, well, obviously you hate gay kids and you're a racist and you're, which is, that's just not true. Um, there are a lot of people who vote for the UCP who have extreme political, conservative political views. Yeah, but the majority of people are regular Albertans who were probably driven by the economic message and driven by that message because they felt an economic economic pain at home. Cultural and, affinity. Everybody yeah. else in in my community were voting UCP, and yeah, I, and, again, and I know the lo- I know self-identifying as so, conservative, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, I th- I think that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the celebra- celebratory photo is, I think Again, it was was insensitive to people who, uh, you know, who 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 felt that there were rights that were rolled back, who felt that this was a bad legislative session. I mean, I think I think that the photo was insensitive to, pe- to, to people who feel felt very passionately about the GSA issue and felt passionately that that on the the morning after the the filibuster, the three day filibuster ended, these UCP MLAs were celebrating. I think that. Uh, uh, it was insensitive to that, but I mean, I think these UCP MLAs do feel that uh, that that they've accomplished something in this first session. I just wanted to walk all of them, you know, across the high level bridge over to the youth emergency shelter and let them see firsthand the half of uh, homeless youth who identify as LGBTQ. And I just want to quote from Hansard for a minute. I thought we all were the children of God. God help the outcasts, the children of God. And I'll just let you guess who said that in Hansard. Oh, jeez. Okay, well, let's move Minister on. Minister Adriana Lagrange, <laughs> and here we are creating more outcasts. And this is this is for me the the hypocrisy of saying um, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that we care about the Pride flag and we care about Pride Month and we uh, this matters and we care about the outcasts, but we're deliberately thumbing our noses at these groups. Do better if you know that these groups are downtrodden. Explain to your base why they are downtrodden and why setting up GSAs are good for kids. They they reduce harm and suicide, not just for queer youth, but for straight youth as well. It's been working in Edmonton Public since 2010 it's, or 2011. It's been working in other boards. I'm so sick of talking about this, and I hate to say it, but we're now going to be talking about it for the next four years as more and more homophobia in the hallways keeps creeping up in our Catholic schools and our private schools. That's been enabled by Jason Kenney and by by the UCP. They are not going to be able to... to uh, uh, shove this back in the closet. It's not going there. The toothpaste is out of the tube. All right. Our next question comes from Irene Kay, and it's sort of connected to the to Joshua's question. Um, Irene asks, in what ways was filibustering effective or ineffective? Dave, what's your point of view on this? Uh, I mean, it, the the NDP's filibuster of Bill 8, uh, I mean, it drew attention to it. It, it uh, it drew attention to the 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 issues around Bill Eight that the NDP was trying to raise. Um, it ultimately didn't stop the bill, but it was never going to stop the bill because the UCP has a majority. Um, this isn't like, and it's not like you know the U.S. Senate or the U.S. Congress where someone can stand up and talk for you know eight days, and as long as they don't yield the floor, they get to keep going. Keep going. Um, I mean, there are there there are, you know these things do end, but there are ways that uh, that the opposition can can draw these things out and. That's one of the tools available to the opposition. What did you think about the the filibuster, Michael? Was it effective or ineffective? 
Um, yeah, it's, I agree with Dave. Uh, and I would say from here, the NDP really need to focus on the uh, the impacts in the communities. Get out there and talk to the workers affected by the overtime. Get out there and talk to the kids who are struggling with the GSAs and the other questions. Remember that uh, most Albertans don't care about what happens in the legislature. They generally think that uh, politics are, are, are boring. You can't, uh, the NDP can't out decency the Conservatives. They need to uh, get out there, stop talking about ear, earplugs, start talking about economic damage and, and talk about how the UCP have no plan on climate change, no plan on the economy, no plan for recovery. That would be my advice to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i just going to add a, some thought here because my I've got parents who are in their 70s. The thing they worry about the most, they've got uh, four young nephews, is climate change, is the mm. kind of planet we're going to be leaving for people. So it's interesting. I think that we're going to have we have a missing middle of sort of um, important issues like climate change, queer issues, and that sort of thing. But the older generation and the younger generation, this is what they're paying attention to. And to me, mm-hmm. it puts a bit of a time limit or it could put a time limit on some of these right-leaning parties. They're, they're gonna, they might have their day in the sun, but then this next generation of voters comes in supported by a block of senior citizen voters who are going to say, this isn't the planet we want. This isn't the society we want. That's, that's what's giving me hope uh, as it relates to this filibustering question. Our next question, uh, we're going to shift gears here and talk about federal politics. Jerry McDonald asks, who will taste the poisoned chalice of being a Liberal Party candidate in Alberta or the somewhat toxic one of running for the NDP or the Canadian Greens. And I'm just going to add, when Justin Trudeau was in Alberta this past week, he said <laughs> that he thought his party would pick up more seats in the next election. Michael, what do you think is the prime minister right or is this a poison pill? Um, I think Jerry's onto something. I don't I don't know uh, what the strategy is for the LPC in Alberta. Uh, I don't know what the um, strategy is for for the NDP or the uh, the Canadian Greens either. But remember, there's not that many seats here. Mm-hmm. Um, look at look at the other provinces. I think the Liberals are a lot more concerned uh, hanging on to the Maritimes, looking at uh, the GTA, looking at looking at Vancouver. I think that's where they're going to be really focusing. Um, Sheer has basically um, climbed into Doug Ford's belt, and they're <laughs> attached at the hip. And oh, that's a visual. And uh, they he's uh, climbed into his belt, not his pants. Yeah, and uh, and they're they're walking hip to hip, and I think that's going to be disastrous uh, for the 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 federal conservatives. They're trying to distance themselves from Ford, but I, I think it's too late. I think they've been campaigning in lockstep, and uh, I think that's really going to help the Liberals throughout Ontario and the rest of Canada. And and I mean we. You can link in the show notes to those engage ads, but they're pretty on the nose. And the rest of Canada is looking at Ford and seeing like, wow, that could happen here. It mm-hmm. could happen there. And they're looking at the SoCon stuff with Kenny and saying, wow, that's here. And I think a lot of conservatives are not enthused about Andrew Scheer. I know they don't like Trudeau and I know they want change, but um, I don't know. We'll see. And I think the liberals will benefit from the NDP vote collapse. I mean, I just saw Jagmeet Singh had put out some bicycle transportation plan or something or he went like like I mean that's the level of policy that he's talking about right now that is not government in waiting kind of policy so yeah. I think the liberals it's the liberals election to lose yeah what do you think Dave do you agree liberals election to lose uh, yeah I think so um he's, I mean Sheer is just not ready <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, Alberta, uh, circling back to the question uh, that Jerry sent in, I think that, I mean, Alberta is just like not a factor in the federal election. How, how like, many seats like, are there in Alberta? I think there are 30, 34 or 36. Out of a total of 300 and... 306. 308? 308. No, it's not 308 anymore. It's oh, right. like 316 yeah. or 320. Um, 
so I mean, Alberta is like the vast majority of the seats will go conservative or uh, PPC or PPC, uh, Mr. Bernier. No, I, no, I don't. Th- I, I don't think. I don't think the Bernier's party is going to do incredibly well. I mean, I don't think they're going to pick up any seats in Alberta. Uh, I, I think what will be interesting. I mean, this couple seats that I'm watching, obviously Edmonton Center, uh, where Randy Boissonneau. I think. Randy has a decent shot of uh, of getting reelected. Um, Amarjeet Sohi and Edmonton Mill Woods will be very challenging. I mean, Amarjeet Amar- is one probably one of the best retail politicians in in Edmonton, um, but like he's just been dealt like a card or a, a, a hand of cards that over on this pipeline issue that is not, you know, they bought the pipeline for one two point or four point five billion. They're pushing the pipeline through, but it's just like there's not enough that he can do to 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 make his make his critics happy albertans are asking even though that happened recently well what have you done for me lately yeah like what have you done for me within the last five minutes yeah, yeah. What, what, sir, what what one one seat that i think will be very interesting uh will be edmonton strathcona and whether the ndp are able to hold edmonton strathcona right because that was linda duncan linda right. duncan's seat they've held it since 2008 i think um uh provincially and provincially this is like when you look at the provincial ridings that that make up the federal Edmonton-Strathcona riding, these are this is like the NDP heartland. The NDP did very well, like crushing in these in these ridings. So it'll be very interesting to see if there's a transfer of votes between in, in specifically at Edmonton-Strathcona, uh, where there is a tradition of voting federally NDP, whether whether those provincial NDP votes transfer federally. And I think this is where the CPC erred uh, dramatically because if they had picked a um, if they had any moderate conservatives, if they had a uh, maybe say a, a uh, R. Hassman uh, that could run in Edmonton Strathcona, I think they could have held that. I think they could have taken that seat. But now the fact that they're nominating um, someone who's tied to the the pro life groups with an endorsement from Carrie Diot and David Dorward, um, I think Sam Lilly might be just too radical for the comfort of Strathcona. I think for a lot of those conservatives who would have plugged their nose and voted for a moderate conservative, I, I think you can expect the uh, the NDP and the Liberals to be out there aggressively um, pushing the uh, the connections between um, Sam and some of those other those other groups. And, and uh, um, I think as the uh, social conservatism flares up with the UCP, I think it's actually going to uh, ignite a backlash against some of these CPC folks as well, too. Yeah. Uh, it's 338. 338. There you the go. House of Commons. Um, the last Nanos tracking poll puts the Liberals at 35 and the Conservatives at 30. Those numbers two months ago were flipped. CPC and I think at 35, Liberals at 30. Yeah. On so the like, campaign so the thir- 35 seats is, 35% is like a massive majority in Canadian politics, yeah. isn't it? Like, I think <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, as you would know, I'm still frustrated with uh, Emerjit Sohi and the, the federal liberals for giving uh, federal public money to a, a Catholic school in Edmonton. Uh, but I mean, I think I think for, for, for me and for people who do not want that, a radical social conservative government taking over Ottawa, I think we'll be looking to the ABCs of politics, anybody but the conservative. Hmm. Our next question is from Duncan Kinney, whom we all know, I think. Uh, he asks... What is the value in the public inquiry, the one that's being undertaken by the provincial government? Do you think Vivian Krauss's conspiracy theories will hold up to a $2.5 million inquiry headed by a forensic accountant? What are the odds Progress Alberta gets called in despite doing zero oil sands pipeline campaigning? So I believe Duncan does work with Press Progress. Does he not, Dave? Uh, Progress Alberta. Progress Alberta. Sorry. Yes. Okay. 
I I think if I'm if I'm Duncan right now, I'm hoping and praying that I get called into this inquiry. I mean, that would give him such a a, a spotlight. This inquiry is going to take these people and and shine a light on them. Um, it it. Uh, it, it's going to be, I think, a, a massive unintentional gift that the UCP is going to be giving to legitimize a lot of these pi- uh, pipeline opponents. I think they should not be talking about this out there. This is this is going to backfire. So if I'm if I'm Duncan, I mean, I think he's. I think I'm I'm hoping that I get called in and I get to participate in them too because if not you're a nobody. I, I actually hadn't <laughs> hadn't thought about that perspective, but Dave, what I, do you think? I, I mean, I think that I think this is going to be a fantastically effective fundraising tool for environmental groups and anti pipeline groups, especially in British Columbia. But will um, they be fundraising from foreign oh, sources? I, 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 no, I think they'll be fundraising from British Columbians and Canadians <laughs> who will give them five or ten bucks because they because they think Jason Kenney's mounting a, a witch hunt. Uh, and trying to stoke regional political grievances, which I think this is exactly it. I think looking at the public inquiry, I think that a, and maybe they couldn't find anybody to do it. But I mean, I think it was a serious mistake not to appoint a judge or a former judge as, judge as the commissioner of this inquiry. I think that... A, but appoint- accountants are so much more interesting. They can really get to the bottom of those rows and columns. Is, is, that, is that a strategy, do you think? Like, do you think it feels a little bit like kind of a, I don't know, it's not a court, but a kangaroo court by not bringing in a judge or former judge? Maybe they couldn't find anybody who would agree to do this because it is a witch hunt. Who knows? Okay. Our next question comes from Casey Bertel. And if it's the same Casey that I know, I used to work with, he was a student one summer when I was at DDB Canada. Uh, Casey's getting married soon. So congratulations congratulations to Casey and Lorene. But Casey asks... Got to get some Alberta, t- no. Alberta party talk in there. We have to, Jan. Yeah, since, no. since Ryan left, we've like talked. We haven't talked much about the Alberta party. I know party. it's kind of weird. It's not but, a thing. So Casey wants to know what are your thoughts on what happens to the party now, and any potential leaders. What is it? Well, it's not a thing. It's not a thing now. It's 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 not a thing then. So zero elected MLAs. Yeah, but nine percent of the vote. But nine percent of so the vote. So they increase their vote dramatically, dramatically from like one percent to nine percent. Stephen Mandel is done. Yeah, resigned He's... since since we've recorded our last pod. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Mandel has resigned as leader. So what happens to the Alberta Party, Michael? You're saying it's not a thing. It's not a thing. So it wasn't a thing. It's still not a thing. It's like what happens to the why don't why aren't we talking about um you know the. Uh, the social credit party. It's, it doesn't, it's not a thing. It doesn't matter. It's like transwarp drive on Star Trek. It's Why aren't we talking failed, about that? A failed experiment. What was the name of that captain on the Excelsior? I, I, I can't we'll remember. We'll have to look into that. That was so a great here's scene. The, here's the he thing. He carried around a riding whip yeah, thing. Yeah. He was a weird dude. Yeah. Here's, so, the, here's the thing. What's the thing? I think that there are some really smart uh, minds who are involved in the Alberta party who are really committed to civics who hold politics as a noble profession that they, they want to engage they in. They got 9%. And yeah. I think that there's huge room here for kind of a public engagement, public policy think tank for something that could be looking at some of those innovative ideas that they put forward in their platform. I, mean, I, I think their vaccination policy requiring kids, if you want to go to a public school, you should be vaccinated. If not, you're invited to homeschool is very well thought out. Um, I think there's a lot of other pieces where the Alberta Party could be kind of a coming together for um, uh, people who want to talk about ideas again. And and I don't think they're interested in in doing the hard organizing retail work of policy. I think they they want to uh, be a, a public institute and we should 
we should encourage them to do something like that. So um, I'd be interested to go in and hear, uh, hear what they're talking about and what Ed Whittingham and Ken Chapman are up to. Because um, I think we, as we were talking about at the top of the show, we, we, need, we need some imagination and some ideas. And, and uh, they can't just all be coming from the, uh, the Fraser Institute. So uh, Michael's advocating for a, new, a hiring spree at Progress Alberta. Dave, what do you think? They could just absorb all the people from the Alberta Party. Well, you know, I think that uh, I, the the Alberta Party needs to be more than just a anti a party made up of anti anti Kenny former progressive conservatives and disgruntled liberals who couldn't bring themselves to vote for the NDP in the last election. Yeah, I mean they 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 need to be more than that. I mean they need a leader. Um, I mean I think the idea of of you know acting as a, as a civics think tank. I think they could actually make some pretty positive contributions that way. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see. I know that they're having a, the, for those of you who've been following Alberta politics for a number of years, you might remember years ago, there was a, um, a series Reboot of conferences. Alberta 2008. Yeah, series yeah. of conferences organizing. Ken, I was there. Ken Chapman was I, one of we the, the, yeah. the ringleaders uh, organizing a, a conference. And this is right after, was soon after I think it was soon after Ed Stelmack got 72 seats. Yeah, won a massive majority and people were trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. The liberals were decimated. The NDP were going nowhere. Uh, and part of what came out of those conferences was the rebooted Alberta Party, which has existed since the Alberta Party on, has existed since the 1980s. And originally it was like a far right wing separatist group. But then it was it had this name and it kind of floated as an orphan political party. And then there was this group of former Greens and former liberals and and former New Democrats and former progressive conservatives who kind of came in and took over the Alberta party. Um, and it always seemed like it was on the verge of some kind of taking advantage of some kind of opportunity, but it never, ever quite got there. They elected, Greg Clark was elected in 2015 as the MLA for Calgary Elbow. And then, and they seemed like they were going somewhere and then they dumped him as leader, brought in Stephen Mandel, and now they're Kind of back to square one. I mean, they got nine percent of the vote in the last election, which is which is nothing to to uh, nothing to scoff at. Um, it's traditionally where the NDP used to be when they would won won two seats or four seats, but it wasn't enough to win any seats. And if you don't win seats, then you don't basically get a say in in the way our, the way our system works. It's really hard to kind of carve a place out if you don't actually have a seat in the legislature. Um, so yeah, maybe looking at some kind of think tank is it might be the way to go. Um, I'm just not sure in our political, uh, the, the political environment that we're in, if there's really a space for another kind of another centrist political party. I mean, the NDP have basically taken they, between the NDP, the NDP and the, the UCP. Yeah. There's, I don't know where there's any room for, for, for that, right mm-hmm. now, for, uh, for, for another kind of centrist conservative party. Well, then along those lines, this, this question from Spence O'Hara, do you think that fringe parties like the Greens, the AAP, uh, the FCP will ever have a future in Alberta? Nope. Yeah, and I heard from Dave, not in the foreseeable future. Not in the foreseeable future. I mean, we talked about it on a previous pod. Um, we had a, a similar question, but about the Green Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think there's road, there's there's paths to, you know, a success for the Green Party in terms of like maybe winning a seat in the future. And we talked about, I think I talked about Calgary Mountain View. We talked about Banff Kananaskis, um, some of these kind of more leftish writings, leftish writings with a bit of an environmental, that could have a bit of an environmental bent. Um, but not in the foreseeable future. Spence has one more question we're going to answer today, and that is, what's the difference, and I think this will be good for some of our listeners, what is the difference between a minister and an associate minister? About (laughs) (laughs) $65,000. And one is an elect 
elected. Well, typically, nope. ministers. No, they're both, are, they're both elected. They're both elected. Yep. Okay, an associate minister yeah. is elected. Right? Yeah. I was thinking of deputy minister. It's a minister. way of shining a spotlight on somebody to give them attention and an up and coming star that's maybe not ready for cabinet yet, but they either need to please or shut up. So they give them this position <laughs> yeah. as a way to uh, get them out there on message and uh, waving the waving the flag. That that sounds like a pretty cynical point of view, Dave. Do you do you agree or, or is it uh... Uh, g- generally? I mean, I think that that uh, I mean it is it is. It, Associate. I mean, they're all MLAs. So there's a cabinet minister, and then there's in some roles, in some positions, there are, um, in or pardon me, in some ministries, there are associate ministers that are kind of like junior ministers, but they're not full ministers. Um, I mean, in Alberta, we have a few. I'm trying to remember who they are. Um, I think Dale Nally is the associate minister for natural gas. There's one for Jason, mental health. Yeah, I Jason Lewan is mental health, and the NDP had an associate minister uh, of health that was kind of in, basically in charge of mental health. And I think it it gives the government an opportunity to to provide pro- provide a little more or present a little more political attention to issues that they want to focus on mm-hmm. that they think need attention. Um, so it, it's not uncommon. Not every ministry has an associate ministry. I mean, one of the one of the ones that that people who listen to this podcast will probably have heard a lot of over the past few months was is the associate minister for cutting red tape, <laughs> yes, um, or red tape production, um, which you can go to their website and, and list and give all your suggestions. I know Progress Alberta had a uh, had a whole list of suggestions uh, for uh, for people who uh, who wanted to fill out their survey, um, uh, but that's that's an example of of. You know, using associate minister, the associate minister position is kind of a political tool to focus on your agenda. Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you uh, to Spence for that question. And to all the folks who asked questions, uh, we'll tell you in just a moment how you can send in questions for our next show. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you to our producer, Adam Rosenhart for helping us put the show together and a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB for supporting the show. You can send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us and follow us on Twitter at at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca and also feel free to leave a, a review where you download. Yeah, and and you can follow us on Instagram. Yeah, as well. so yeah, I'm yeah. On, yeah, we're on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Dave Bird on Instagram. Are yeah. you on TikTok? No, not, not yet. yet. Not yet. No. Are you on Vine? We were. Are you on Canada Post? But then they. Should. <laughs> we should all be on Canada Post. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Um, we're gonna take uh, another bit of a summer break from the pod. We kind of wanted to do a midsummer check-in. Uh, Dave and I are going to continue our vacations with our families, just relaxing and maybe not thinking quite so much about politics. But we will be back at it with a regular schedule at the beginning of September. Until then, so long, everyone, and thanks for listening. Goodbye. I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Michael Jans. And you're listening. Speaking Municipal.